welcome to film class. I'm Sean. Uh, some might say that I'm a seriously misunderstood creature. Others might say I'm a bit of a tosser, really, uh, which is probably more accurate. Today, we're very lucky to be joined by Dr. Lucy Andrew. She is the program leader at University Centre Shrewsbury. She's a researcher of children's and YA literature of crime fiction, fandom and LGBTQ fiction. Lucy, welcome. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me today. It's our pleasure, or I should say my pleasure, so I should explain to our listeners, Shane isn't here today, unfortunately, but we've got Lucy to fill in, so it's, it's absolutely fine, we're very excited. And Lucy, the most important part of your CV I forgot there is that you are also, I, I think I'm accurate in saying that you are a Draco Malfoy mega fan, or even Stan, is that correct? Yes, I'm an absolutely huge Draco Malfoy fan, and avid Slytherin as well, so I'm a big Snape fan, so I, I was very excited to be asked to talk about the Half-Blood Prince because it's definitely my favourite, I think, being um, the most Slytherin of all of the books and films. It is, yeah. I thought this is definitely Slytherin's like moment of glory in the series. And I have to say, when we were planning out this series, uh, you came into my head, actually, when I thought about this book, because I'll, I'll never forget when I met you, you had a beautiful Slytherin shoulder bag. And I think that just lodged in my memory. I was just like, right, we need to get Lucy in for this episode. <laughs> so can you explain why are you such uh, a committed member of the House of Slytherin? <laughs> I think I've always, you know, being a crime fiction fan as well, I've always looked for the darkness in literature and the morally ambiguous. And I think Slytherins get get a bad rep, really. And and perhaps J.K. Rowling um, herself, I say, hasn't perhaps given them a, a fair hearing herself because, of course, she's telling Harry Potter's story. And to Harry Potter, Draco Malfoy is just this awful boy um, who's, you know, his, his big rival in the school and Snape is this awful teacher who seems to have it in for him. So, of course, from his point of view, Slytherin are awful. Um, but as we know, Harry himself could have easily um, been put into to Slytherin House. So I think this is the first of the, the, the films and books where we really start to see a little more complexity um, to the members of Slytherin House. So I, I think we, we should give them a fair hearing. Yeah, I agree. And I think that idea of, you know, we are seeing things through Harry's eyes. So we do get a, a quite poor portrayal of Slytherin. You are the first person we've had who's actually teaching in a university setting rather than like a primary or secondary school setting. So can you just talk a little bit more about how you're using Harry Potter in teaching? Because I feel like a lot of our listeners are probably going to listen to that and feel so envious that you're watching Harry Potter films with your students and getting to dissect them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we focus on the books um, more than the films, but we do bring in the films to the, the discussions as well. I actually um, teach Harry Potter on two different modules. So one of them is my um, second year children's literature module, where we look at the Philosopher's Stone and we look at, in particular, the the kind of roots of of this story in terms of the genres that it's pulling upon, um, and particularly you know the fantasy tradition and the school story tradition, also the the kind of mystery and detective tradition as as well, um, because I do think there are kind of clear mystery detective crime fiction roots which change I think as we go through the narrative but I actually teach the half of prince as a, a YA text so I have a young adult fiction module for the third years um, and we explicitly look at the half of prince um, as a sort of coming of age narrative and think of it as being young adult fiction rather than children's literature and we look at the things that have changed in this series um, at this point um, and why this text um, sort of speaks to adolescence and pushes boundaries in ways that um, a text like The Philosopher's Stone, um, which is more firmly situated within children's literature, doesn't. In terms of the teaching that we see in this text is 
Harry's sudden brilliance at potions and his reliance on this book of the Half-Blood Princes, which of course we realise is Snape's book. So ironically, Snape is teaching him in, in a rather sort of sinister way. In the book, of course, when he curses Malfoy with his Septum Semperance spell, his reaction is really quite strange because when Snape tells him to go and fetch his books, because Snape, of course, recognises the spell and realises this is the time it's really going to get him in trouble because he's been using his old potions book. Because I remember um, in the book, it's it feels a lot more sinister and unnerving, doesn't it? The, all the this, and I remember reading it at the time and thinking it was probably Voldemort when I was a kid reading it that this was like his textbook, and I remember thinking like, why can't Harry work out that that's who this is? And then you get the reveal that it's Snape, and I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because I feel like in the film, at least, it just feels like a kind of nothing moment like it's just there's, there's no real purpose really i don't think to it in the film other than as you say the spell that he casts on draco but what do you think we learn about snape from all these annotations and as you say this method of teaching him that is indirect and unofficial like what why do you what's the purpose of this do you think in the book one of the interesting things about it i mean we we don't snape's a very secretive person and we don't often get an insight into him what it allows us to see is a relationship between, I suppose, the, the schoolboy Snape and, and the schoolboy Harry, which of course can't exist in real life. And it perhaps kind of emphasises to us that, that, that actually they are quite similar. You know, H Harry is so focused on hating Snape that he won't recognise the possibility that Snape is actually on their side. Thank you. For that. I really like that interpretation and that idea that it kind of shows us how isolated and perhaps miserable he was during his time at Hogwarts and I guess it also testifies to the fact that he's just he is a, a brilliant wizard like even at a young age he's he's coming up with all these incredible spells and it suggests that an ambiguity talks about a lot in terms of like how do people how do you become a teacher at Hogwarts like is this like the best of the best or is it as it seems to be like Dumbledore just kind of picks you at his own discretion the other Slytherin we have to talk about in this particular film is Slughorn, who is our new potions teacher because Snape's finally got his promotion. He's Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. It's finally happened. What are your thoughts on Slughorn? Because I think he's, for me, one of the most kind of interesting figures in the books in terms of his kind of ambiguities. Slughorn, of course, Slughorn's a very interesting character. And, and I'd say for a Slytherin, he is particularly interesting because he's more nuanced than our usual Slytherins. Harry doesn't have quite that same reaction to him as he does that you know, visceral hatred that he has with Snape and Malfoy. Slughorn enjoys the little perks that he gets from those students who are part of his slug club. And he enjoys putting them in, the, in those situations of power as well. He enjoys helping them, giving them a leg up and feeling that he's had a part in their journey. But I think it taps into something that we see in the entire Harry Potter series about the idea of teachers and their students, in that there's always this kind of very uncomfortable blurring of the boundaries and particularly with with Harry and several of his teachers that you don't get that kind of healthy and professional relationship that should be there because he has a lot of kind of personal connections to these teachers outside of their their teaching roles so Slughorn I think is is just one of the examples that we see here slightly sinister uncomfortable unprofessional teacher pupil relationship doing things that they perhaps shouldn't crossing boundaries that they perhaps shouldn't yeah absolutely like you're right i hadn't really thought about hogwarts in that way but you're right that it is a space where the lines that we expect between school teachers and students 
are a lot more blurred, even in the sense of like the fact that they know their first teacher, their teacher's first names is kind of strange. Or and I wonder if part of that is because they are at Hogwarts for so long and they spend so much space with these these adults that it becomes much more of a kind of in loco parentis type relationship than it does in a school where everyone's you know running around from lesson to lesson. I agree with you, Slughorn is definitely a sinister character. I actually think the addition of that whole idea of the lily that turns into the fish, which is quite a beautiful image of this idea that Harry's mother is this student that he's previously like collected and that she gave him this gift and it kind of withered away when she died. It makes it seem a bit less like how Dumbledore views it and how he is presented, which is that he just collects like, you know, big names and it's part of him like greasing the wheel and trying to become very, very connected, you know, kind of setting up big names early while they're in the schools so that he can maybe use that later. You know, it's a classic like ambitious kind of trait and an interesting idea of ambition. I think we haven't seen in the books yet where it's not like Voldemort's ambition to be like the greatest wizard ever. It's a much more banal idea of ambition that I think is much more commonplace of just, you know, wanting to slightly increase your kind of position in the hierarchy. But I think the addition of that image it makes it seem actually like there is also a kind of real affection for the students that he like quote unquote collects which makes it seem a little bit maybe what they wanted to do was make it seem a bit less sinister than it is and, and make him seem a bit more human i think the the bit we have to talk about with slughorn that they also make quite a significant change i think from the book that i do remember is the memory that he's holding onto this whole time that they spend the whole book trying to find this moment where tom riddle approaches him and asks him about the horcruxes now in the film tom riddle says I was in the restricted section of the library and I was reading about this stuff. Can you tell me a bit more about it? And so he does. But in the book, I remember that it, it's much more like this is a banned topic at Hogwarts. Like Dumbledore doesn't want anyone to know about Hogwarts. There is no way to find this information in the school. And so there's much more of a sense of Slughorn like overstepping an agreed boundary when he starts talking about it. So it's another way, I think, in which that they can't minimize what he's done here. But I wanted to talk to you about that because I think it's something that we can maybe broaden out to our discussion of teaching more generally. This idea that there are some subjects that just cannot be discussed, that just aren't appropriate at all. And that Slughorn, real embarrassment here and shame is that he does broach this and gives kind of Voldemort the encouragement to, to do this thing. How do you feel about his decision to, to share that information? Because I feel like as teachers, it's our impulse to just share information. And, and certainly, you know, there are moments in the series where like Dumbledore, you know, says Voldemort's back when the ministry don't want him to. There are other moments where teachers say they're going to tell kids stuff that they shouldn't really be sharing with them because they think it's important. So I, I kind of sympathize with him in this moment because, you know, it seems actually like not innocuous question, but just a genuinely like intellectually curious kind of question and it's only after he starts sharing the information that he realizes what he's done so do you sympathize with him or do you think he really did cross a boundary that he shouldn't have crossed yeah I think it's a bit of both here I, I think I I do have sympathy for Slughorn and that's why I say that he's a more, more nuanced character than most of the Slytherins that we've seen to this point and, and yeah you're quite right about that distinction that we get between the book and the film in terms of in, in the book yes it's very explicitly said that this is a bad subject at Hogwarts so his transgression in actually sharing this information with Tom Riddle is a bigger one than perhaps we realise in the film but I think there's a very kind of clear message here about the idea of teachers being human that notion that as teachers you have to keep something of yourself hidden from your students and that's something I think that Slughorn really struggles to do. Dumbledore is quite good at concealing things from Harry throughout the series. And it's only really in this book that we see him 
actually start to become a bit more honest with Harry. But Slughorn, we, we could see it almost as as an endearing trait in some way that he he struggles to keep up this kind of professional front. I think, again, it's a, a difficult thing here because, of course, one of the reasons why Tom Riddle is probably seeking this information to begin with um, in, in this quite sinister way is because it's banned, because it, it's something that he shouldn't know and therefore he automatically wants to know it. So he puts Slughorn in a really difficult position here, and I do feel for him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I like that contrast you've just drawn between uh, Dumbledore and Slughorn, because one of the things that really struck me on rewatching all the films this time was was that element of Dumbledore you spoke about, where it starts off, you know, his our cozy, like, genial figure. And he also becomes, I think, quite sinister by by the time of the end of the books, you know, when we know he knows that essentially Harry's going to have to be killed for this whole situation to be resolved. Actually, particularly in the films, there, there isn't really that sense of conflict, you know? So even when we see the beginning where he takes Harry to Slughorn and he's just basically like, he's going to collect you, he's almost, he's quite openly using Harry here, you know? And it's for a common good, but there's a, there's a sense that he's actually quite comfortable with using Harry for a common goal and also he never as you said he never shares the full picture you know he, he he's very controlling with his information and I think you're right that there's something more endearing and relatable about Slughorn as someone who just he just wants the kid he just wants the kids to like him you know especially the kids that he's decided are you know his favorites although that element of like very blatantly picking your favorites based on their social status you know I think we could certainly challenge quite a few of the guests that we've had have mentioned that they started to go off the books some people said from Azkaban some people said from about this point um, and I wonder if it is because I think the reason why this world is so attractive to so many people is because it's comforting, magical, and it's fantastical, and it can ignite your imagination. But it's also, a, a, Hogwarts is a very much a comforting place to be, you know, it's a, an idealized school. And that is just, is dashed by this book. It no longer is, you know, the dark marks above the school, the death it is infiltrated, Dumbledore is dead. And it kind of, it forces you to confront, I guess, the reality of the situation that Harry's in, and therefore, to a certain degree, withholds that, like, comforting fantasy from you that previously the books have provided there's a lot more teaching in the book than there is in the film and I know obviously some of this is for reasons of you know space but one of the most interesting things is that Snape has been desperate to be Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher for so long and yet we don't actually see that happen in the films you know we we don't we don't see him in action there are you know quite a a few scenes in, in the book where we actually see Snape teaching the dark, defense against the dark arts. I nearly said the dark arts there, which is what Harry sort of suggests he is doing because he talks about his, um, how he talks about the dark arts with reverence when he's teaching them and he's, Harry's disgusted by this. But I, I almost feel sorry for Snape here that his crowning moment um, in the, um, in the film, we never see him teaching defense against the dark arts. So the only way in which we see Snape as a teacher in the films is actually through um, the Half-Blood Prince's potion book and, and how he's teaching Harry. But of course, Harry doesn't know that it's Snape who's teaching him here. You're right. It's like, it's almost like a kind of like narrative revenge, isn't it? Because although it's a third person narrative, we very much see everyone through like Harry's perspective. Everything's filtered through his eyes. So it's almost like he doesn't want to give Snape, the satisfaction of his glory to the reader, like we are not going to really get to enjoy. It. Although you said that, you know, there, is, there are more scenes in the books. It's like that's still being withheld from us that we get to see like Snape finally doing the subject that he really wants to do. 
we have had a bit of a running battle that I wasn't expecting. It was quite interesting between myself and Shane, where every week we're pitting McGonagall against Snape. I do love McGonagall. She's my favorite teacher. And so every week we just seem to be like, well, Snape wasn't great here, was he? Well, what about McGonagall here? I have to say, given what, what we know eventually about why Snape does what he does, that this is, I guess, you know, this is one of the bravest moments in the books in terms of him actually killing Dumbledore as requested and joining the the Death Eaters as a kind of deep cover action. But also McGonagall does have a moment I just wanted to touch on right at the end that I just think is really beautiful where Dumbledore's dead and she initiates the kind of raising of the wands. It's such an elegaic image and it kind of disperses the dark mark, but then also has a really quiet moment in Dumbledore's office, doesn't she, where she approaches Harry and she just like offers him support and she's not pushy. She just says support is there if he needs it. He meant a great deal to Dumbledore and Harry doesn't respond and she doesn't force the conversation. And I think you can really see the artfulness of that. It's a really difficult thing, I think, actually to to engage with students and young people who are maybe troubled or have experienced loss in a way that she does here, which is really, really sensitive. So this is a great McGonagall moment, much as yes, this is very much Snapesville. I did want to ask you, Lucy, just a few questions we've been asking everyone. Although I've got an additional question for you, actually, because you have a unique perspective here as someone teaching in a university. We have spoken previously with a primary teacher and we've kind of like speculated on, do we think the kids have a primary education? And we kind of what we kind of decided that it seems they don't, they just kind of get educated at 11. Do you imagine or like, just let's just speculate here. Do you think once they leave Hogwarts, there is a university they go to? Because of course, all the teachers are professors, but that title is never really explained when we know in our world, that's, you know, a difficult title to achieve. You have to be an academic for many years to, to attain that. What do you imagine? Yeah, that's a really interesting point with, um, particularly I was thinking about it with certainly in the, the book version, which we don't, I'm not sure we see in the film. Um, of course, um, Tom Riddle tries to become a teacher at Hogwarts and he has his own reasons for this, but he, he tries to apply sort of straight from school. And it, and it did get me thinking, hang on, there doesn't seem to be any training for teaching here. Um, I, I, and, you know, they do say to him, oh, come back when you're a bit older. And he does come back, but he doesn't seem to have done any training. So there does seem to be a kind of arbitrary um, sort of education system here in, in terms of, certainly in terms of teaching. I know for some of the other professions, the, there's a suggestion that you at least have to have taken um, you know, certain subjects at school, we, we see that with Harry wanting to become an aura and McGonagall sort of being this mental figure who's telling people what subjects they need to take. So there is sort of a level of that. And I think that there's obviously things like aura training, etc. But obviously, there's no mention um, of university at this point. And I don't know whether Rowling has, has kind of since created it. But for teachers, it does seem to be odd sort of hodgepodge of um, different types of characters and there are different reasons why they they come in here so there's a kind of weird collection of teachers and a weird collection of reasons for them being there and um, which is why I think you know some of the teachers are a lot more capable perhaps than others we get people like um Professor Trelawney for example who is is just there because she's made this prophecy about Harry and Voldemort which she doesn't realize she's made and she's there for her own protection so there are people that are pulled in and you think you know what what qualifications do they actually have to do this and McGonagall I think if anyone has been through a teacher training program I feel that it's McGonagall because I do agree that she is as a teacher she's a really safe pair of hands and I like that moment that you you picked up on in a the film that's not in the book where she she um goes to erase the dark mark and then everyone 
raises their wands. That McGonagall um, is someone who, you know, I've been talking about those boundaries between teachers and pupils, and she's someone who is a, and, and is quite fair and is able to be a disciplinarian when she needs to be. She's able to be a mentor when she needs to be. But she has that balance right in a way that I think pretty much no one else at, at Hogwarts does. But yeah, there seems to be a, a real kind of lack of of training and I think if we look at the the defense against the dark arts teachers for example and their methodologies um they're so different that there isn't a kind of set way of doing things and we see a lot of examples of bad teaching um throughout our time at Hogwarts right it's it's incredibly variable isn't it because it does seem that uh Dumbledore just decides who's going to be a teacher so you get people like Lupin who are great and who have really engaging lessons and then someone like Trelawney who is a little bit useless at teaching but I think one of the things we did talk about and I don't we weren't go maybe to just death into divination again because we have talked about it before but like it must be an important subject right because like why are they teaching you maybe actually which is that actually it's not important at all Dumbledore just wants to keep her there so it's just like well we'll just do the cover will be she'll teach divination which everybody knows is like a load of nonsense but that brings us to my final question to you Lucy uh that we have been asking everyone we've had quite a variety of responses actually but I want you to think about if you were then Professor Andrew at Hogwarts what subject would you be teaching do you think and why and that might be different to the one you'd want to teach maybe it's Snape style maybe you think your skill set is one place even though you'd really want to teach something else this is a good one because I, I actually had this conversation with my students a couple of weeks ago and um, I think everyone wants to be defense against the dark arts teacher but I think I will be awful at it because I'm bad at practical things so I, I was kind of thinking about the the types of subjects they teach there and what would be the equivalent of teaching English literature. And I thought one of the closest to uh, my own subject is probably something like history of magic. And we decided as a class that because, because Professor Binns is so boring and, and awful at teaching it, that uh, it sets the bar quite low then. So, you know, hopefully I'd be a better history of magic teacher than Professor Binns was. I love that. And I love that you could just tell from the books that J.K. Rowling clearly just had a really bad history teacher because Harry just slates history of magic at every opportunity that it's mentioned. Uh, but I think you were actually the first person that said they would want to teach history of magic. So I think in our, in the film class Hogwarts school, I think we were happy to have you as our history teacher. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lucy. It's been a real pleasure to hear your thoughts. On Harry Potter, and we are coming so close now to our last episode, which will be airing on Christmas Eve. It's very exciting. Uh, where we talk about the Deathly Hallows. Um, but Lucy, thank you so much. And also, I just wanted to, uh, if you can just direct everyone where where are they able to find you and your work and so forth. Thank you very much. It's been um, great to be here today. I've loved talking about this. You can find me on Twitter at Lucy V Andrew. You can also find my profile on the um, University of Chester website just type in dr lucy andrew thank you so much lucy see you later bye thank you for listening to us today follow us on social media we're on twitter at film class pod and also on instagram on the same handle also you can send us an email at filmclasspod at gmail.com send us over any comments any suggestions thank you so much as well to kevin mcleod for our music night in venice you can find all of kevin's work in Compatech filmmusic.io and the license is at Creative Commons. See you next week. See ya.